Welcome to Ghostwriters Anonymous, an inspirational and interactive podcast where we create worlds through words and writing. I'm Kelsey, and today I'd like to know if you were a thoroughbred title, what thoroughbred title would you be? I would be Open the Blast Doors. The shortened name would be Blast for like a racing horse or greyhound or something. It feels longer than what it was, but I'm pretty sure I read this book over the summertime. It's called You Feel It Just Below the Ribs, a novel by Jeffrey Craner and Janina Mathewson. They're the creators of the podcast Within the Wires, which I haven't actually listened to. I have listened to Welcome to Night Vale, and Jeffrey Craner is a co-creator to that podcast with Joseph Fink. Both of those guys actually wrote The Faceless Old Woman Who Secretly Lives in Your Home, and I shared an excerpt from that book on our paternal episode. The book itself, The Faceless Old Woman, is a standalone, but it shares the same characters and lives in the same world as Night Vale. You feel it just below the ribs, lives in the realm of Within the Wires. It's not affiliated to Welcome to Night Vale, but it follows the same sort of formula, a fictional story that builds on itself with every release. I finished the book, You Feel It Just Below the Ribs, but it was one of those books where it felt like a chore to do so, and I just wanted to see what other people thought of it. If I remember correctly, it was pretty decently rated. And I think I was so crestfallen because I had such high hopes for this book. I loved The Faceless Old Woman so much, and so I thought maybe I would like Jeffrey Craner co-writing another book with another person, and it just wasn't the same experience. The book itself felt like writing it was a chore. There were several times where I just felt like words were put on pages to fill space, not so much fill me with inspiration or ignite something thought-provoking inside of me. It sort of felt like maybe it was written to get it done or meet a deadline. I'm not really sure, but when I was reading the reviews, the people that seemed to like it the most were the people that listened to Within the Wires. And they said it's advertised as not a prerequisite for Within the Wires podcast, but they don't think think that someone like me who has never listened to the podcast will understand the full embodiment of what the book has to offer. I won't know all the layers or the nuances or maybe even some inside jokes. But then there were some people who, like me, felt like this book was a rudimentary version of House of Leaves, which I've expressed this before on this podcast. House of Leaves, I really appreciate it for what it was, but man, I just didn't like the book as a whole. I don't know if I would reread it again. I feel the exact same way with this book. And it felt like this book was trying to mimic it in a way. Similar to House of Leaves, we have this main character who is tormented. They're bordering on insanity. It's just very psychological and tumultuous psychology at that. And then to take it a step further, like House of Leaves, we have paralleling stories, one through the footnotes and then the other through the main body of the page. So if you like House of Leaves, you might like this book. The whole reason I was interested is the title. You feel it just below the ribs. What could that be? Like that is what drove me to finish the book. Is it an incision? Is it something supernatural? And then when I finally got to the revelation, it fell flat. And I think it fell flat because as the story progressed, I was becoming more and more disappointed and it wasn't what I envisioned it being. I should not have been surprised because if it lives 
in the realm of a podcast titled Within the Wires, sort of like a probing, wiring, invasive surgery type of thing. If you add that with Insane Asylum, then you pretty much have a nearing spoiler alert of what you feel it just below the ribs is. But I will say, one scene I really enjoyed, which I'll be sharing now. We have the main character, Miriam, who is growing up in a time called the Great Reckoning. It's basically a fallen world to disease, politics, divide. It's a free-for-all. There's hysteria, there's war. It's pretty much every man for yourself. And it's very rare to have a family remain intact because either they've died from lack of food or disease, a stray bullet, scavengers. You have kids who are alone. They don't have any guidance. They're just living on instinct. And so when they encounter someone, it's very tense. Like, are they a friend or a foe? And Miriam, as an adolescent, comes across a farm that is thriving. And so when darkness falls, she tries to steal food from the garden. She's apprehended. She's taken to the leader of this community. Instead of being punished, she is welcomed into the community of academics. They like to, at night, lecture and debate. They want to apply these skills that, in their words, their world needs, but their world isn't using. People come to this community, they stay for a little bit, and then they leave. Or they stay long-term. Miriam's one of those who stays long-term, from adolescence to early adulthood. She's grown very close with the leaders, which are two women. These two women are her friends, and they tell her that they're no longer serving this particular community, nor is this particular community serving them, so they have plans to leave. They haven't told her when, they just say that it's on the horizon. And so one day they do leave. The community wakes up in the morning and they can't find these two women and some other people and so they're asking questions and they're jumping to conclusions and it's starting to turn into something chaotic and the reason for that is the Jacobs family. Miriam describes them off the bat as garnering interest because they're an intact family. They're a mother, a daughter, children, cousins, and it's so rare to have that that they stand out already but then on top of that they're close with one another and set in their ways. It's almost creating this abrasion of we're not going to change yet we're doing a lot for this community. It starts to create these splinters of divide and then things start escalating to where the leaders Nora and Ekaterina reach the conclusion that maybe it's time for them to leave. They're kind of seeing what's coming and they don't want to be a part of it. Personally I think it was shitty of them just to leave without a formal departure but with them leaving it's left this hole. Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to run things? What's the future of this community like? Are we going to continue in the way that it's been? Or are we going to take on a whole new mode of operation? What about this Jacobs family? They came in, they have their own ideals. Do we kick them out? Do we keep them? It seems like they've converted a lot of people to their way of life. Should we adopt that? There's a lot up in the air. So they decide to have a meeting, but it doesn't have a very big turn out. They called for a meeting that night, but only about eight of us showed. The seven members of the Jacobs family and the twelve others did not. Alice, who is someone who is possibly volunteering to step up and be leader of this community, talked about reconvening the evening salons. 
which were their lectures and debates, partly to return the Arboretum to its intellectual roots, but also as a way to bring us all closer together again, a form of family bonding. While she was talking, it seemed like everything could be okay, but as the conversation proceeded, the cracks started to show. What do we do about... someone said. About what? said Alice, with the air of someone who knew exactly what. The woman who'd spoken, I don't remember her name, rolled her eyes. Come on, you don't think there are people who are going to challenge this? If you're talking about the Jacobs family, they know the goals of the Arboretum and agreed to abide by them when they arrived. They will not, and if you think they will, you're a fool and not fit to lead any of us. Haven't you noticed how few people even turned up for this meeting? We're outnumbered, and these people are violent. They'll hurt us if they have to. Another voice joined in. Why aren't we asking the obvious question? The Jacobs could have killed Nora. There were several shouts against this extreme idea, but more than one cry of agreement. The worried stirs spiraled on for a few minutes until Rory stood, bringing the group to silence. Okay, he said. While I like your plan of inclusion and togetherness, Alice, it's too little too late. We have a crisis, not just of disunity, but of violence. He spoke dramatically, his manner almost statesmanlike. Our way of life is no longer just under threat of attack. It has already been attacked. We are Nora's intellectual descendants, and this is our home, our farm. If we are to return to our old ways, to shun aggression, fear, and tribalism, we must remove those that stand in our way. We'd have to do it by force, someone said after a moment of quiet. We do not, Rory countered. We will have to do it by diplomacy. The Jacobs, for all their differences, have worked hard on this land. We cannot ask them to leave without recompense. We will take our time and negotiate what is rightfully ours and theirs. Alice, you'll be able to handle that, won't you? From the look on Alice's face, I could tell she had not discussed this with Rory previously. I will talk to Nathaniel and Lena, Rory said. That's the mother and the father of the Jacobs family. I'll talk to them tonight, and if they agree, we can begin the process of divorce and divvying up goods. It's most important that we keep the house and the land. Anything else in the farmstead, including crops and stored food, is open to negotiation. There were murmurs of trepidation. If they do not agree to go, Rory continued over the nervous chatter, then we'll ask that they, in good faith, participate in our salons and our gatherings. We appreciate the hard labor they have put in, but the Arboretum will fail if we cannot all stay together. We cannot allow things to continue as they are, but we can give the family options. Stay if they are willing to stay entirely or leave. It was nearly 10 p.m. when Rory accepted the unanimous blessing of our group to talk to Nathaniel. He left the den of the main house and headed toward the barn where the Jacobs family slept. Alice went with him. Do you think they'll agree? I heard someone ask. I think they'll take everything from us, someone replied. And then it was quiet for a moment. We began to stand up, one by one, to say our goodnights. Some would stay up to see how Rory and Alice's conversation went with Nathaniel. I chose sleep. As I stood, I noticed something in the window. I thought it was a bird based on its quick movement, but birds wouldn't be landing on sills at this time of night. Then I heard a gunshot. Then a scream. And another gunshot. Gunshots were common, but not this late. I looked out the window again and saw the movement. It was not a bird, but a man. He was crouching, moving swiftly along the front porch of our farmhouse. It was his head I had seen bobbing along the bottom of the window. Run, I shouted, out the back. The front door swung open with a loud crack, and almost immediately there was another gunshot. My ears rang. I heard a scream, but I did not stop. 
I scrambled for the back door. Another shot. Several more. I did not look back. I ran and I ran. I ran out the back door and across the rocky, empty cornfield, long since harvested. It left me no place to hide. I heard more gunshots and something swished past, close to my head. They had seen me. I ducked instinctively, but I did not look back. I ran. I ran. I ran and I heard thumping steps running behind me, gaining ground. I ran even when the hand of the man behind me crashed down on my neck, toppling me forward into the cold, hard ground, my legs still thrashing even as my center of gravity tumbled ahead of my feet. I heard the dark laughter of one of the Jacob's cousins above me, his body on top of mine, pressing the air from my lungs. My hand slapped at him, and he tried to pin my arms down. He succeeded, and then he rolled me over, holding my wrist tightly as he pulled my forearm up my back. Every muscle from my shoulder to my fingers burned. I wondered why he was hurting me rather than killing me. Perhaps they wanted me alive because they still wanted my help. Perhaps they wanted me dead and this man just wanted to torture me first. But when I finally opened my eyes to see who my attacker was, I saw that his head was turned. He was looking at something several feet away. It was the rifle. He had dropped it when he tackled me and it was lying out of reach. He stretched his free hand toward the gun, keeping his other hand on mine, still pushing hard with my twisted arm up my back. I was crying, not in pain, but reflexively. My eyes watered and my throat croaked. I could not stop it. I wanted to run. I was desperate to be moving, not to get away, not for my safety, not consciously. It was deeper than that, a visceral primal urge to run as fast and as far as I could. I needed to run. And so I did. I ran nowhere. Flat on my back, I moved my legs, kicking back and forth in a horizontal sprint. My flailing destabilized the brute holding me down. He turned around and pulled tighter and tighter on my wrist. The pain was unbearable, but I kept running, prone in an empty cornfield beneath the weight of my assailant. He worked his knees onto my thighs, trying to pin my legs down, and as he did, I saw my escape. Every one of the Jacobs family carried either a gun or a knife on their person at all times. This one carried both. I shifted my pelvis like a sprinter making the final turn on the track, my legs now kicking upward to his left. I caught part of his inner thigh and, I believe, his testicles. He winced and let up momentarily, but not enough for me to break free. I did manage, however, to get my right leg out from under his left. I wrapped it around his leg, twisting us both onto our sides. With my right arm still pinned by his thick hands behind my back, I used my left, now freed from my own weight, to grab at the knife sheathed on his belt. My free arm was tingling and numb, so I couldn't feel for what I needed. I had to watch my movements and move quickly. He countered as soon as he felt my hand at his waist. Letting go of my other arm, he throttled my left wrist with both hands, sending the knife flying out of my grip into the dirt, several feet past my head. He laughed, then pulled back his arm and punched me across my temple. I couldn't see anything, hear anything, think anything for a moment. I wanted to vomit. Maybe I did vomit. Later, I would find stains on my shirt that looked as if I had, but I don't remember. What I do remember is the cousin scrambling off me, stumbling quickly toward the knife he had knocked from my hand. Reflexively, I pulled myself up and began to crawl in a daze, back toward the farmhouse. From behind me, I heard his feet stop. I knew he had found the knife. My hands kept clawing through the dirt. 
I could feel the skin on my knuckles breaking in the rocky autumn soil. Then I felt something else and stopped. The cousin was running back toward me, but I had what I needed. I picked up the rifle he had dropped earlier, turned around, fired. He was only a meter or so away from me, the knife at his side, prepared to plunge it into my chest or neck or face. His body jerked to the side and from his hip, I saw a burst of skin and denim fly away. He shouted in agony and his momentum carried his body just past mine until he landed face first in the dirt. I stood over him, cocked the rifle, and pointed it at his head. He was crying, trying to speak. He may have wanted to plead for his life, explain the actions of his family. I didn't care. I shot him quickly at the base of his skull, ending him immediately. I'd butchered pigs before. I turned away from the farmhouse and ran. I ran more slowly now, exhausted and limping, but I ran, and I did not look back. And so on the line where it says, I shot him quickly at the base of his skull, ending him immediately, there's a footnote. It is difficult to verify this account. There are numerous reports of murderers by militias in the 1920s and 30s. So while it's not unreasonable that this particular story could be true, Dr. Gregory's, that is Miriam's, execution of this unnamed cousin of the Jacobs family reads more like a crime thriller and feels out of character with the more controlled persona she has constructed in this book. Dr. Gregory is Miriam. She goes on to become a psychologist. So what I liked about the scene was the author or authors, I don't know which one wrote that scene or maybe it was a collaborative, but either way, I thought it did a really good job of explaining what was happening in the fight, but not too wordy. I didn't get lost in trying to work out the choreography of it. And that's something that sometimes in my own writing I struggle with. How do I set up a good action scene where it doesn't just read like some sort of dry step-by-step -step manual? There's still descriptive words in there like his thick hands were twisting my wrist and it was burning, stuff like that. But at the same time we're still getting, I drew up my right hand while my left hand did this. So if you're one of those people that keeps track of movement spatially, there's this flow to it that you could I'm sure easily follow. I personally am not very good with spatial memory. I think that's another reason scenes like that are harder for me to write or I have to think through them more just to make sure it's flowing correctly because invariably someone who's more on the ball is going to read this and say wait a second they said your left hand's doing this there's a continuity error in here but beyond that I felt the excitement of the scene as I was reading it and as I had stated earlier, it was really difficult for me to fall into this book. So for me to be completely in that scene was huge. I think this is one of those books where I could sense a lot of statements were being made ethically and politically, and I rejected them, not because I disagreed with them per se, but anytime I feel like I'm told to do something, I immediately want to say no. The copyright for this book is 2021. And so I feel like a lot of today's problems were woven into this book. A lot of it felt too close to home. And that's coming from someone who really comes from no political stance. I really don't get involved with stuff like that. But then having to read about it made me quick to point out maybe hypocrisy or flaws in the characters. For example, when they're having that meeting, they're talking about the root ethics of the Arboretum. If we are to return to our old ways to shun aggression, fear, and tribalism, we must remember 
remove those that stand in our way. And this kept resurfacing throughout the book, this need to not have tribalism because it leads to trouble, chaos, uprising. But at the same time, tribalism was already established. They had a hierarchy where Nora and Ekaterina were the leaders. They had adopted a community of people that would come and go. They were put to work. They were given a purpose. There was structure. How is that not a tribe? And so I just found myself being very frustrated in particular points in the book, more often than not. And then the book would take on these real passive tones where it would state something and then it'd say, well, but maybe it's not this. It just was so wishy-washy. I kept thinking, is it or is it not? I just want someone to give me some sort of finality, not this. Anyway, irrelevant. That kept popping up. Anyway, irrelevant. I almost wanted to count how many times that was in the book. Is this just the way the author talks casually in conversation and it's coming across in their writing? Or does the anyway irrelevant banter throughout the entire book play into the Within the Wires podcast where they use that as transition terminology? I'm really not sure. Let me see if I can find one. Okay, so here's a perfect example. Have I jumped ahead too far? I can't remember where I left off. I stopped writing and bundled all my pages together and put them in a box under the bed and for a while I decided to forget that they existed. I spent my days walking, sitting alone and looking at strangers. Walking some more. I think I passed a year this way without writing a word. Maybe I should let another pass. But that is risky. I'm here to die after all and what if I die without telling everything? Anyway, irrelevant, isn't it? Or is it the most relevant thing of all? I'm here to die, but I must finish my task before I do. I'm not sure what made me feel like that, what made me push my past away. It's like a sudden injury. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to look at it because that would make it real. But now it is not real. And not being real, it is nothing. And I don't have to know about it. I'm not going to read over what I've written. It's enough dredging all this up at once. Isn't it enough? And so that is Miriam questioning herself and everything in life and what she's doing. And I get it. I understand the whole point is for you to be in the head of this character and to understand that maybe this character is going crazy or why they're going crazy or what they're tormented on or feeling guilty about, having second thoughts about. It's the character's inner monologue and I understand that that's messy and twisted. It could just be a personality conflict. I don't really like that meandering, wishy-washy mentality. And so that's probably why books like this or House of Leaves frustrate me. <laughs> but at the same time, if I'm to dissect my own thoughts, I experience it a lot in editing these podcasts, it's just as cyclical and meandering as what's in the book. So there's a paradox for you. If you've read it, I'd love to hear what you think about it. Feel free to email us at gwritersanon at gmail.com. You can share some of your own writings. Sometime soon I'll share some more excerpts of this book that I'm trying to get written. Feel free to visit our Facebook page, Ghostwriters Anon. As always, we'll catch you guys next week. To where it doesn't read like ugh, frustration. Ugh, frustration. But 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 ugh, frustration. To where it doesn't read like ugh, frustration. But 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 but
but ugh, frustration. But 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 ugh, frustration. Anyway, irrelevant. And that it was. It was. And that it was. But 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 it was anyway irrelevant. What 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 it was what but 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 what it was and that it was anyway irrelevant.